Well, all right, welcome to episode 42 of Seize the Moment podcast, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Brian Van Norden. He is a translator of Chinese philosophical texts, scholar of Chinese and comparative philosophy, and a public intellectual. He's an expert on Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, and he wrote a chapter about Confucianism in the book How to Live a Good Life. And actually, he's much more than that, according to Confucianism. <laughs> Brian has uh, many roles. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. Hey, Brian. So, who was Confucius? Uh, who was Confucius, and what did it mean to him to live a good life? So, uh, Confucius, or as he's known in Chinese, Kongzi, mm-hmm. uh, lived from about 551 to 479 BCE, and he was born into a family that had aristocratic ancestors, uh, but he was born into poverty because his father passed away when he was very young. So Confucius had to work very hard as a child. Uh, He was, uh, at various times, a herder of sheep, um, an accountant at a granary, uh, amongst other things. But with the assistance of a wealthy friend, he was able to attend uh, the equivalent of college. Uh, He went to study at the uh, Zhou Dynasty Royal Archives. And so he became uh, very well self-educated. And he lived in a time of crisis in Chinese history because China was divided into states that were vying for supremacy. There was a king who theoretically ruled over all of China, but actually the the king reigned but did not rule. So power was in the hands of the rulers, usually the dukes of these small states. And they would wage war against one another, um, and they often couldn't control the bandits Uh, in the countryside, and they tax the people to the point of exhaustion to pay for their wars of conquest and luxuries for people at court. So Confucius was looking for the solution to his society's problems, and he decided that the the solution was to get virtuous people into positions of government authority. Mm. He came up with a, a conception of what it is to rule well, which focused on benevolent government, government aimed at the well-being of the common people, and what kind of character a person needed to have to both be a good uh, person in general, but also a good official in government. Um, And that was what he described as the Tao, the way to live. That's really cool. So it kind of sounds like Plato's philosopher king. That's great. I was thinking that too. Yeah. Yeah. There is an important similarity there. And you still get uh, people who will say that there is no such thing as Chinese philosophy. And I, I point out this similarity and I say, well, look, Plato uh, found that he lived in a corrupt society. And he, dis- he said that we won't have an end to trouble until either philosophers become rulers or rulers become philosophers. Structurally, the solution is very similar to what Kungza or Confucius came up with. He said we wouldn't have peace until either uh, rulers... And ministers became sages and worthies, or sages and worthies became uh, ministers and rulers. But the the conception of what it is to live well in Confucius is very different from the conception you get in Plato. Mm -hmm. How how did they differ? What does Confucius look, or I guess what does Confucianism say about living a good life? Well, uh, by way of contrast, as you know, uh, in the Republic, Plato says that the, the, the guardians, and in particular the most advanced guardians who can uh, benefit from philosophical training, will have their spouses and their children in common because your attachment to your family is a distraction from the commitment to the overall good. In contrast, Confucians think that the family is the basis of virtue. And so uh, Confucius and his disciples said that it's in the family that you cultivate virtues like benevolence or compassion for the suffering of others. It's in the family by respecting the boundaries of others in the family and having your boundaries respected that you learn righteousness or integrity. And so the virtues that you have in public are really just familial virtues writ large. Mm -hmm. So one important difference between many Western accounts of what it is to live well and the Confucian account is that the Confucian account takes your obligations to family members seriously as the foundation of other virtues. And unlike, say, Aristotle, who thinks that the family is just a tool for producing and maintaining philosophers, 
Confucians see the family as having intrinsic ethical value and also as being the nursery in which you learn the virtues that you then exercise outside the family. And when you say boundaries, what you're saying is that pretty much those virtues have to be cultivated within, I guess, the boundary is a sort of the structure of which or in which you're supposed to sort of develop these particular habits, you know, toward other people. Is that what that's about? Well, here, here's what I mean. Two of the most important virtues in the Confucian tradition are benevolence mm -hmm. and another term that's often translated righteousness. I don't know if that's the best translation, but intuitively, benevolence is what you would think it is. It's compassion for others. It's taking joy in the well-being of others and the happiness of others and also feeling sad at the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. But it's got to be balanced, according to the Confucian tradition, with righteousness. And righteousness is something like your personal integrity. Mm -hmm. And sometimes benevolence and righteousness point in the same direction. So uh, one example uh, I, I give in my writings is I never make fun of someone else for not having nice clothes. And I, I partially I feel that way because as a person with benevolence, you shouldn't want to make other people feel bad about not, not having fancy clothes. But also, as a person of integrity, you should be ashamed to be the sort of person who emphasizes shallow things like people's personal appearance or their clothing or how expensive their house is. So usually benevolence and, and righteousness point in the same direction. But another way of thinking about righteousness or integrity is that it, uh, it limits the exercise of benevolence so that you're not a doormat to other people. Mm -hmm. so, uh, at one point, the great Confucian Mengzi is one of his disciples is encouraging him to accept an audience with a ruler who has uh, been rude to Mengzi, and he, he does so by appealing to benevolence and saying, "Well, perhaps you could teach this ruler to have greater compassion on his subjects." But Mengzi rejects that and says, "Look, people who uh, are allow themselves to bend their principles." are never able to make others straight. Uh -huh. Wow. So, and so he says, I have to maintain my own personal dignity because this ruler isn't going to listen to me unless I have a certain kind of personal gravitas or dignity. And so, yeah, you should be compassionate to others, but you also should have a sense of yourself and your, and your own boundaries. And that's what I mean by weighing compassion for others against the boundaries of your own self-respect so that you don't become a doormat. Oh, that's so interesting. And then you would pretty much have to respect other boundaries as well, where it's like um, sort of assess whether or not you feel like the other person is, even if they're not in your sort of understanding of what's compassionate toward you, that you're understanding that, well, they're doing something that's right for them, ethically speaking. Right. I mean, there's a nice uh, passage in, in the Confucian text where it says, uh, if you try to be polite to somebody and they're rude to you, um, you should say, well, look, what, what am I doing that's, that's wrong? I mean, maybe I wasn't sincere enough in my, in my uh, politeness and in my deference to them. Right. If you keep uh, doing the right thing uh, and you know, they, they still come back with rudeness, you know, then you, know, you need, need some more deeper soul searching and asking about the, the situation and making sure you understand it. But then they say, if you're, you've investigated yourself and you're, you're, you're sure you're doing the right thing and you've understood the situation and you're sure you understand the situation and they're still rude to you, well, maybe they're just an animal. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and so uh, you're allowed to have that self-respect where you say, wait a second, everything that goes wrong isn't my fault. If I'm, if I'm trying my best and I'm, I'm really exercising my, my wisdom the best I can, I'm consulting my friends, I'm getting their opinions, at some level you may have to say to other people, well, they're just rude and that's not my problem, that's not my fault. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that about Confucian, that trying to ba balances up these different aspects to ethics and doesn't try to give an entirely one-sided conception of ethics. What's great is when you end up not being a doormat, people paradoxically tend to flock to you, actually. Even that person who was not so nice to you when you tried to extend a warm hand, sometimes, yeah, the moment you kind of take it away and you still respect yourself, sometimes they come around anyway. Yeah. Something I've noticed in my own personal experience. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a, another Confucian saying, which is, virtue is never solitary. It always has neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so people you know, respect your integrity. And this is, again, I think part of what Mengzhen means when he says, look, if you bend yourself, you're never going to be able to straighten others. 
um, because it's only when people respect you that they're willing to accept your advice. Yeah. And that actually reminds me. Um, so we actually recently had Sky Cleary on the show, and so oh. for, yeah. So and then from her kind of from the existential perspective of the book, How to Love a Good Life, she told us that you know she said it's so interesting because a lot of times our enemies are essentially better friends than friends because a lot of times our friends are too benevolent and too compassionate, whereas we're trying to grow in some area. You know, we're kind of asking for advice and we're telling them like, hey, you know, like it's okay, you can be honest with me. But our friends are like, mm, yeah, we don't really kind of want that, right? Because it seems too confrontational. So some. Sometimes we have to look toward our enemies to kind of help us get better in some ways. And so what's so cool about that is that the way we kind of, I think, conceptualize ethics sometimes is in this very black and white way, where if I'm compassionate, I have to always be compassionate. So I can't ever hurt another person's feelings. And um, not to kind of go in this direction, but I do think it's relevant, like in therapy, this actually comes up for me a lot, where um, sometimes people ask, or sometimes people tell me, or, you know, kind of just t tell other therapists, where they say, like, hey, we actually want a therapist to kind of call us out on our bullshit, right? That's, for us, that's helpful, and that's part of growth, but some people are like, mm, but I, this person is obviously struggling with mental illness, so I don't really want to hurt their feelings, I don't want to increase their suffering, and so this happens a lot with trauma therapy, where the sort of misconception is that if they have to relive or recount their trauma, that they're re-traumatized in some way. In some sense, that could be the case, but the point is that it's sort of done in a very kind of nuanced and complex way where obviously mm -hmm. the person feels safe recounting their story. But kind of my major point is in all of this is that sometimes it's okay to kind of not be an asshole necessarily, but it's okay to be sort of more honest than you want to be because that in itself is compassion and it's sort of reconceptualizing what it means to be compassionate. It's like in the short term, even though you're doing something that might kind of, you know, sort of give the person this sort of pang feeling, this sort of hurt, that in the long run you're actually helping them grow and I think Confucius would have advocated for that, no? I, I think that's exactly right. And mm. there's another uh, Confucian saying I love, which is, uh, those who compliment me are my enemies, those who criticize me are my friends. Interesting. And of course, it's not always, always right. that simple. I mean, your friends can sometimes, of course, uh, be complimenting you. But uh, a later uh, Confucian, Wang Yangming, in a letter of advice to his disciples, he had a couple of great pieces of advice. One of the things he said was, look, You've probably heard it said that you shouldn't criticize your teachers. That's wrong. I'm your teacher, and I make a lot of mistakes, and so you should start criticizing people with me. And secondly, he said, but when you're criticizing your classmates, remember to do it in a way where you have in mind what's actually good for them and what they're ready to hear. Right. And so you don't want to criticize them to make yourself feel better. You want to point out things that they have a problem with because you care about them and because it will help them. Right. Uh, it's like uh, I, many years ago, I was uh, giving, I was talking to a friend, and she asked me what I thought about her situation, and I said, uh, uh, I said, well, there's three ways I could answer this. Uh, I could answer the way most people will answer as friends, which is to be completely supportive of everything you're saying. Um, I can answer in the way where I'm largely supportive, but I hint at the issue I see, or I can just be blunt Brian and just come out and say exactly what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, she kind of looked at me and she said, well, be blunt Brian for a second. Mm -hmm. And I, okay, how is what you're doing in your relationship anything different from what you've described your mother doing in her relationships that you said were really messed up? And she said, wow, it's not different at all. Mm -hmm. And a year later, she divorced her husband, and she was in a new relationship with a guy that she really liked. Mm -hmm. And you know, and but she was ready to to hear that hard truth. But I was also able to couch it in a way where I kind of warned her. I said, "Look, as your friend, I, I'm seeing something. Do you, are you ready to hear it?" Right. So she wasn't off guard by it. And so in that little way, I feel like that's an example of how you would be a Confucian friend. And in some way, I think that that would indicate righteousness, because um, I would think that in that respect, like you pretty much put her needs above yours, because I think that some internal part of you is sort of pulling yourself toward avoidance, because you're like, no, 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 I don't want her to hate me. Please don't dislike me, right? I want everybody to love me. And then the other part of you said to probably to yourself, like, mm, even if I kind of risk being disliked, I mean, the idea is this is actually what's good for her, almost fully, because what? Actually, I see it as just, it sounded like you just have a full consideration for how she may feel based on your approach. I, I don't even know if there's, I mean, it's possible there's a, you do want to avoid um, how you look to her, but I would say it sounded more like there was just full consideration just for how she would take mm -hmm. yeah. whichever well, in, approach. That's true. In, in a way, I mean, that's precisely, that's another Confucian virtue, which is wisdom. Mm -hmm. 
So, and part of wisdom is having a good read on other people and understanding what are some, some effective and ineffective ways to approach them on issues. Um, and as I like to stress, uh, I mean, normally I get these things wrong. That's why I'm so excited when occasionally <laughs> I ask navigate a situation like this correctly. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, studying things like Confucianism can make you a little bit better person if you're really willing to try to do it, because it gives you examples of, Confucians are very big on examples of, you know, what does a virtuous person look like? What does a virtuous person do? And you can help model those things to, to get a better sense of how to live your own life. So in terms of righteousness, I mean, I guess my question would be, um, is there sort of a, is there a balance between sort of being righteous toward yourself and being righteous toward others? And what would that look like? Well, the uh, Mangza, who's a, a great later follower of, of Kumza, says that uh, righteousness primarily manifests itself in an ethically informed kind of sense of shame or disdain to do certain things. Mm -hmm. So paradigmatic examples of righteousness are things like refusing a bribe that's offered to you, mm -hmm. or refusing to cheat in a game, um, or refusing a, a handout if it's given with uh, contempt. And so an, an example I, I used to use when I, when I went to school in uh, uh, Philadelphia, there were a lot of homeless people, and a, a lot of times when they were asking for a handout, they would do something like they would scrounge a newspaper out of a, a trash bin, and they would try to sell it to you. Um, because that way, you know, they weren't begging, they were engaging in a kind of transaction with you. Um, and so that even someone who's on the edge of starvation and doesn't have a place to live, they still have a sense of self-respect, that there are certain things they just won't do. Right. So it says, yeah, that's characteristic of human being. We have this sense of shame. And but Mungsa says that the problem with humans is we manifest compassion in some places. Like we see the, the, the kitten out in the rain and we feel sorry for it. Or we manifest integrity in some cases, so we don't want to accept a handout that's given with contempt. But then if somebody offers us a huge salary to sell out, we accept it. Yeah. Or we see um, if there are homeless people, uh, human beings in our town, or we see humans being treated badly at the border, we just ignore that kind of suffering. Yeah. So among says that a key part of virtue is extending your reactions of compassion and your ethically informed sense of shame from some cases where you already have it to other cases where you ought to have it. Right. And That's what the virtuous person is for Mungs. And I, and I wonder though, would there be a limit to it? Like if, um, would you kind of see it as too much self-sacrifice? Would that be antithetical to righteousness or virtue or would it be actually conducive in some way? Right, so you don't want to, I mean, again, this is how I say you want to balance these virtues. Right. Now, uh, a, one of the things that's very characteristic of Confucianism is the ethics is very context-sensitive. And so there could be situations in life where, given who you are and given the situation where you're in, the, getting the ultimate sacrifice is required. And so Mungsa says that if you've got, if you're a person of integrity, you don't forget that you may end up losing your head. Mm -hmm. uh, possibility. But on the other hand, uh, you, you are allowed to have a, a reasonable self-regard. So one wise person Mungsa describes, he's living in a particular state, but he's not a government official in that state. And the ruler makes a really stupid strategic decision that's going to cost him the state. And so this wise person flees the state. And so some people say, well, look, how could you flee the state, you know, if you're, if you're this virtuous person? And Mungs explains he wasn't a government official. He didn't have an obligation to stay. He was smart enough to see that things were going to go really bad. So, of course, out of self-preservation, he left. Why shouldn't he do that? But then he got a position in another state with a ruler who recognized his talent, and he was loyal to his ruler. And he said he would never have fled that state because he was an official loyal to a ruler. Mm -hmm. So required to do depends a lot on your situation. Yeah. And um, actually, I wanted to ask this earlier. I just w wasn't sure when. Um, so what I, I realized that there's um, so that in for example, there's a distinction between the Buddhistic thought and um, thought in Confucianism. So 
I noticed that uh, Buddhists uh, value compassion, and in that sense, uh, they do recognize that we live in relationship with each other. However, there isn't that, um, they don't believe in an attachment to your identity or to the identity of others. Um, what would you say is the distinction or the difference between uh, Buddhistic thought and Confucianism um, in terms of relationships? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and historically there's been a lot of tension between Confucians and Buddhists because they, they agree about certain things like the importance of compassion, but the, the standard Confucian critique of Buddhism is to say that a hair's breadth error at the beginning leads to a thousand mile mistake at the end. Like if you're aiming something, you're just a little bit off at the beginning, you can be way off by the time you hit the target. Are you trying to hit the target? And so the Confucians say that the Buddhists are right to emphasize compassion, but they're, they're wrong for failing to identify the importance of individual humans and their particular relationships. So Buddhist monks and nuns, in most cultures, there are exceptions, but in most cultures, Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate. And they leave their families of origin. They, they don't have families of their own. Um, they don't engage in romantic or erotic relationships. Uh, but Confucians say that these relationships that you have with particular individuals are both intrinsically morally valuable and also important to cultivating and maintaining your humanity. So uh, I am a particular individual who owes a duty of filial piety to my parents. Um, I don't owe that to your parents although I, I could owe them respect as elders, but I wouldn't owe them filial piety. Likewise, you guys each owe a duty of filial piety to your parents, but not to my parents. Um, and, for, and likewise, I care more for my children, although of course I care about the well-being of children in general. So for Confucians, the fact that we care more for our own family members than for complete strangers, um, or for our friends uh, more than people we don't know, as long as it doesn't lead us to engage in behavior that's actively harmful to other people, there's nothing wrong with playing favorites when it comes to ethics. That's part of being a human being. And, and that's something that Buddhism, with the fundamental teaching of anatman, no self, um, has rejected. For a Buddhist, if you're fully enlightened, uh, romantic attachment could only be an attachment by one illusory individual to another equally illusory individual. But the Confucians say, no, those individuals are real, and they're the foundation for all of ethics. Hmm. And what's so cool is that, like, your roles, I mean, pretty much your relationships with other people define you. And, like, um, what I like about that so much is that because personality is so hard to pin down, and um, it's so hard to kind of sort of see yourself as a, I don't know, a particular thing consisting of particular qualities, because obviously qualities change, kind of relationships change. And so what I like about, what I like about sort of the, I guess, relational perspective of Confucianism is that you pretty much, the idea is that, like, even though you're sort of in the Buddhist sense, you are always changing and you're always in flux, that doesn't mean that there is no self. All that means is that you are a particular self at a particular point in time and it's defined by these particular roles so it's like the roles might change obviously you may obviously not be a father someday right or you may not be i don't know um let's say a teacher someday you might take on another job but the idea is it's not that there's no self in this extreme it's just that the self is kind of always changing but you are sort of responsible to maintain that self in whatever roles you take on exactly so if you just ask and everybody in the audience can do this too just ask who are you Mm -hmm. And think about how all those descriptions of yourself are relational. So, uh, I'm a son, uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a teacher, I'm an author, I'm an American. All those things are relational qualities. They're only true because I'm related to other individuals. But, as the Confucians like to point out, there have to be individuals in order for these relationships to exist. Right. So, right. without the particular individuals who are my children, I wouldn't be a father. Without the particular individual who is my spouse, I wouldn't be a husband. And so, likewise, I'm an individual in these roles. Uh, so, the, the, two, the twin virtues of, of Confucianism, the two most important ones, benevolence and integrity, uh, do justice to these two aspects of ourselves. The relational aspect is covered by benevolence, 
the fact that we are still an individual with our own needs and our own integrity is covered by righteousness. And I like how Confucianism does justice to both those aspects of ourselves, the individual aspect and also the communal aspect. Yeah, actually, uh, something I, I liked, a quote from, from the chapter, um, it's from a, a Confucian. He said, the people are my siblings, and all living things are my companions, all under heaven who are tired, disabled, exhausted, sick, brotherless, childless, widows or widowers. All are my siblings who are helpless and have no one else to appeal to. To care for them at such times is the practice of a good son. And that's... I love that, by the way. I, I, yeah. yeah, that's the Western inscription by Zhang Zai. It's one of the fundamental statements of Confucian ethics. And you're right, it's so moving. Um, and it, it brings up this, these, these twin aspects of the ethics because in a way you should think about all younger people as, as your children, all people your age as your siblings, all older people as, as if they were your parents. But they'll say that depends on knowing what it's like to be an actual son, knowing what it's like to be a sibling, knowing what it's like to be a guardian of children. Um, and so your concrete relationships are the ground from which you extend out to have compassion for everybody. Right. That's so cool. And so um, what I love the most, or I guess what struck me the most about Confucianism is because, since I am a therapist. Um, so this sort of the concept or the chapter, not the chapter, I'm sorry, the part that you had about sort of this ideal of, um, what is it? It's pretty much sort of self-enlightenment, right? And so a lot of times the kind of misconception, so I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so a, a lot of times sort of the misconception that people have is that, well, they say, well, CBT is too simple, right? So there's no possible way that it can work, right? Because they say, well, humans are very complex. So, you know, maybe psychoanalysis is sort of more for me because it's sort of this deeper exploration, right? And so the way I kind of try to combat that is by saying, like, look, in a sense, you are right, right? But I think that there's a sort of nuanced distinction between what we mean by simple and easy. And so the way I kind of look at CBT is I say... Look, so the thing is with cognitive therapy, I mean, it's simple in the sense of the concepts are all easy to grasp, right? You know, you have these core beliefs, they affect your behaviors, they affect your moods, and in some way, these kind of cycles all sort of are intertwined, or rather, these are parts of a cycle that are sort of all intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so when people think of it, they say, well, I mean, it's just, it's too simple. Like, there's no way it can be that simple. And I say, well, it's actually not, not probably in the way that you're thinking of it. So it's simple, not easy. And so I think this went, or it is sort of um, related so well to Confucian ideas, because when we talk about sort of simple not easy what we mean is that like when we with righteousness and compassion like these are simple ideas to grasp but they are very hard ideas to, ideals to cultivate so when I kind of tell people about therapy I'm like no no so you're right right so the kind of the, the ideas that we're going to talk about in here what I teach you about cognitive distortions when I teach you how to do the CBT thought record pretty much kind of logic and examining your thoughts and how they affect your moods and how they affect your behaviors all of these concepts are simple putting them into practice is actually not going to be easy so the part is actually actually doing the work, right? So I can teach you all of this stuff and then you walk away from here feeling good and then you come back next week and say, oh, well, I didn't do any of those things. So, I mean, that's the difficult part. So the therapy is not so much about what we teach, right? It's sort of helping the person actually motivate themselves and sort of um, kind of el also eliminate barriers to actually practicing the skills and cultivating sort of that person that they have the potential to be. And so what I loved so much about that part um, in your chapter was when you said that it's sort of a myth that we can kind of just attain this aha moment and all of a sudden sort of recurred. And so a lot of times people kind of misconceptualize cognitive therapy is that it's like, oh, well, I learned about these negative core beliefs. Now I can, and I see how irrational they are. Now I can just change them, right? It, it's never that simple. So easy, yes. So in the sense that um, that kind of sort of um, resonated with me, was when you talked about that episode of Love Boat or the kind of series <laughs> Love Boat. So in Love Boat, pretty much the idea was that like every week, like there was some grand revelation and then the person's life immediately changed, right? So, but in kind of Confucian ideals, the per even though these are ideals, the point of them are, or the point of them is, is that the person can't just automatically change. Like, these are habits that have to be cultivated. So it's not that one day, I mean, and you might have these revelations, obviously, because that is the point of therapy, but to actually hold on to them and to act in such a way that they actually, your behaviors are manifesting those kind of revelations in some way, you have to actually cultivate the habit. And that in itself is very difficult work. And so for Confucius, what I loved is that he had a very realistic understanding of what it meant to be a virtuous person. That it wasn't just 
just some revelation that made you change overnight that it's like yes there might have definitely been a revelation and there i mean it should be to some extent but the point is that you have to actually do the work right it's not that it's just something that makes you automatically change when like um this again freudian sort of aha moment like no no, no the aha moment is good but you have to keep going yeah plus yeah, I... oh pardon uh yes yeah, so, so the aha moment might be just in a like even a satori experience do, do you know what that is yeah they talk yeah. about it yeah, so um, even a Satori experience is, I mean, you could probably reason that it's an emergent of all these cultivated patterns. Mm -hmm. it, it may be that, yes, in a moment, there's a sudden flash of enlightenment or this aha moment, but is it is everything that led up to that contained within that one moment or is it that you kind of, uh, it, it's based on already what you've kind of cultivated and it just kind of came together to produce that right. so yeah even those like relying on having that once upon a time i may have had a like you know a few aha moments i'm like oh that felt great uh, and then i started just to seek those you know and try to have it over and over again but then that was not reliable it was in in the work in grinding and in, in actually attempting to cultivate certain patterns that would lead to any sort of emergent or any kind of change anyway. Right. So, yeah. Those are excellent points. And, and yeah, that's one of the, the, you put your finger exactly on the point I wanted to make, which is that I think it tends to discredit efforts to become a better person. If we think about it as a matter of sudden enlightenment, where like in a sitcom, you have a revelation and all of a sudden everything's better once and for all. The, the insight moment is important, but then, as you say, following through is important. And I, one analogy I like to use is we take it for granted in our society that you can get better at very many things. You can get better at playing tennis or playing golf. Uh, you can get better at playing a musical instrument. You could even get better at appreciating fine wine or, or great music. Um, but we recognize each of these is something that takes a long time to do. And if you don't stick with it, you're not going to get better at it. Ethical cultivation is the same way. You know, it's good to have that excited feeling where you realize, wow, I really am a part of everything else, and this should change how I approach things. But now you've got to do the work of putting it into a, a practical effect in your life, just like if you wanted to golf better, you're going to have to spend a lot of time, you know, practicing putts or practicing your swing or going to someone who's going to critique your swing and tell you how you're doing it wrong. Um, ethical cultivation can work, but it's a hard process, just like learning anything else. Yeah. And it's, I think the same thing with kind of healthier thinking patterns. So just because you kind of automatically, or not automatically, just because in the session that you would sort of reframe your thinking and tell yourself, well, okay, obviously the way I was seeing the world was irrational. It doesn't mean those irrational thoughts are not going to pop up again and that you're going to need to keep using the process over and over again. But sometimes people have this idea of like, I kind of, I come to therapy and like, that's it. I'm kind of, aha, I'm cured. I have this great insight and sort of life becomes this big different thing. And it's never that simple, which is why I kind of try to tell people that it's simple, yes, but it's not easy, not in the way that you thought of it before. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a later Confucian philosopher, Zhu Xi, and he talked about the, the problem of what we call in philosophy weakness of will, which is when you know what the right thing is to do, but you don't do it. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, he thought that it was possible for this to occur, where you could know in a sense what you should be doing, but not be doing it. And his diagnosis is that it's a failure of focus or attentiveness to what you know. And so uh, suppose I say that I should be going to sleep at a, at a more reasonable hour. Maybe I'm really prone to, you know, watching TV or playing video games, you know, when I, I need to be going to sleep. He'd say, the, you know that you should go to sleep earlier, but you've made a decision not to be attentive to that knowledge. And because you've made a decision not to be attentive to that knowledge, it's not motivationally efficacious. Mm. So the for Ju Xi for overcoming weakness of will is not lying to yourself about what you're doing and being attentive to the moral knowledge you already have, which I find useful advice. 
Oh, I love that so much. And it kind of reminds me of, um, so there's a researcher, his name is Johan Hari. And so the way he kind of looks at it is that he says that there are kind of these junk values that a lot of times we sort of, um, I guess, manifest or I guess act in accordance with. And so he says it's like somewhere deep inside, like we know what's really important to us, but the way we kind of live our day-to-day -day lives is literally in accordance with these junk values. Like, you know, sort of pursuit of wealth, uh, pursuit of popularity, fame, uh, pursuit of, uh, let's say, whatever, some, some level of status, right? So he says pretty much like in our minds or in the back of our minds, we know that if, let's say, we were on our deathbeds and we kind of look back on our worlds, that we would be actually pretty upset if this is the way we were living. But we kind of push those ideals away and we actually push the knowledge of that away in some way. And then we kind of focus on these things for the short term that we think are going to bring joy. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. Both Aristotelians and Confucians, although they disagree about a lot, they agree that what's going to ultimately satisfy you in life is not superficial things like uh, empty praise or uh, wealth um, and uh, that th there's other things that are going to give you a deeper satisfaction. And when I, uh, I taught Aristotle with my, my students, I teach Aristotle's argument about, about why wealth cannot be the ultimate goal of your life. And Aristotle has a very simple argument on this point. He just says, well, look, wealth is useful as a means to buying things. But because of that, it can't be the primary goal of your life because you can always ask, okay, you want money. What do you want it for? And it's such a straightforward argument that when I first started teaching it to students, I thought, well, this will take five minutes and then we'll go on to something more challenging. But this blew my students' minds. They were like, wait, 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 wait. So wait, my life couldn't be organized around money rationally? How, how can he say that? And I just, we go over the argument, but no, but no, but, but money, I mean, money could be the goal of your life, right? And I was just struck. None, no one had ever confronted these students with the possibility that, not that money is bad, I'm not saying it's bad, but that it's not intrinsically valuable and it can't be the primary goal of your life. But it says a lot about the society we live in where this is news to a lot of students. And this is a, a major shock to them to be confronted with this possibility. Oh man, that's so interesting. Okay, now I'm really curious. What were their arguments? Um, they, well, the thing was, they never, they didn't really have arguments on it. They'd never been confronted with this possibility. Mm -hmm. So even mm -hmm. when confronted with a very clear argument, you know, they're, they're not sure, they're just so amazed by it. And so they'll just say things like, well, but what if you did? You know, organize your life around money. And I said, well, Aristotle's not denying, and Confucius isn't denying that there are people who organize their life around making money. They're just pointing out that's not a coherent goal because money is only useful as a means to something else. So it can't be what you're trying to organize your life around. And so, but I started having spending a lot more time on that argument and doing more examples involving it. And there's a more elaborate version of the argument in uh, Thomas Aquinas where he just he gives a bunch of specific examples. But it's it's a useful kind of supplement to the the Confucian view. Whereas the Confucians say something similar, um, but apparently in their society, I mean, people knew enough <laughs> to to not regard. Uh, you know, wealth as intrinsically valuable, so they didn't find the need to argue against it the way Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas did. Um, their arguments were on other topics. Right. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was stunning uh, that you could teach students this and just really transform how they thought about their lives on something that you would think they already knew coming into college, but they don't. They don't know this coming into college. Yeah, it makes one start to, th like, at least me, I'm starting to then reason oh, well, then maybe money is just a symptom of something else I could be doing. For, for, or in the sense that maybe there's something I can do uh, that maybe I enjoy doing. And money can be a symptom of that, but perhaps there's more meaning in per just what it is I, I want to do or knowing what it is that I want to do day to day. And maybe money, you know, which is necessary, can just be a symptom of that, but it's not the end goal because then you may organize your life doing something that maybe takes a certain amount of hours away from your day-to-day -day life and that's also a precious resource as well that you're not going to get back and yeah making that your organizing principle is yeah I, I could see why Confucians and Aristotelians would reason that yeah, yeah.
yeah. yeah, no, and it's, uh, I mean, I like to, to play poker, and among recreational poker players like me, we always say, you know, the, the money you win is just how you keep score. Because mm -hmm. that's a day job. I don't, I don't, li I don't live to, I don't play poker to live. Right. You know, you know, so so money can be for can symbolize other things, and of course you need you need wealth to survive. Confucians aren't denying that, but uh, you look at people who are happy, uh, even wealth, really wealthy people who are happy. It's not the wealth that makes them happy; it's what they did to earn the wealth, typically that makes them happy. So there are people like Bill Gates are proud of what they've achieved in their career, um, and. The, the money kind of came with that, but what you know gives them satisfaction is knowing what they've achieved in terms of founding a business and you know having it become really successful. Uh, and the people who just have money have never struck. I never met anybody who was just born wealthy who I think is happy just because of the wealth. What makes them happy is something else they take pride in, like their political accomplishments or their scholarly accomplishments or their. Uh, their friendships or their benevolence to other people. These are the things that give people lifetime satisfaction. And then even being able to provide for your family. Like, that's really a big thing for people who kind of, um, whatever, I guess for lack of a better term, go from rags to riches, which is, I mean, whatever. That's a whole thing in itself. But my kind of point is that, like, people who do do that, sort of if you ask them what's the best thing or what's, like, the number one thing you want to do if you become rich or when you become rich, it's literally I want to buy my mom a house. I want to take care of my children. I want to sort of take care of my wife. And so it's I, easily there. The money is a means to an end. It's sort of being the provider or living up to that role, right? That sort of um, ideal of, um, let's say in this case, provider, father, um, son even. So they're living up to whatever it is that role means to them. Exactly. And... Then we can ask questions like, well, uh, you want to take care of your family, and that's a noble goal. Uh, are you taking care of them in the best way by spending as much time on your job, or would you be taking care of them by spending less time on your job and more quality time with them? Because if you, if you have a choice in your job and you picked a job that leaves you exhausted and takes up all your time so you don't have any time for your family... Maybe it'd be better to make less wealth but have a job where you actually had time for your family or to make time for your family uh, beside your job. And so what I love about Confucianism is that it doesn't really seem like there are any concrete right answers as there would be like let's say with a set of role, uh, rules or a set of kind of um, I guess particularly like commandment types or commandments. So what I love about it is that like a lot of what we talked about today and a lot of what obviously we're discussing is sort of um, it's sort of murky. There's not any real kind of answer. It seems like what Confucius offers more than anything is just a set of sort of guides or a sort of way of thinking about things rather than concrete sort of um, I guess concrete uh, uh, concrete rules to particular situations where it's like if you're doing this scenario you're supposed to do this if you're in that scenario you're supposed to do that what he kind of tells you is a lot like kind of um, I guess existentialism and Aristotelianism is I mean there's a way of thinking about things but you're really the only one who could come up with the answers in the end yeah it's uh, I mean Confucianism I, I, I agree it's especially interesting because it's different on the one hand from ethical systems like, say, Kantianism, that want to give you a set of rules that will tell you what is right and what's wrong in every situation. And one of the problems with that is no one succeeded in coming up with what those rules are supposed to be right. that will always give you the right answer in every situation and that will actually be uh, non-trivial. Um, uh, but Confucianism is also different from systems like utilitarianism that tell you to quantify people's happiness and just produce the greatest happiness for the greatest number, because it recognizes that the good is, if you will, multivalent and complex, and it can't. It isn't something that you can add up on an accountant's worksheet. Uh, but Confucians do think there's a there's a right answer for you in your particular context. But seeing what that right answer is isn't going to be a matter of just reading rules off of the list or adding up. Uh, pleasure and pain on an accountant's, uh, you know, uh, ledger. Um, it's more about being creative and handling situations. And most of the time, in fairness, the the rules that you have to follow, everyday rules will are, be a good guide most of the time. Most of the time, don't lie. Most of the time, don't murder. Right. Don't kill. Don't assault people. Don't steal from people. Most of the time, perfectly good rules to follow. Right. But in everyday uh, like, like if you have a friend that you, you're worried has a drinking problem 
or if you, you have a friend who's in a relationship and you're worried that maybe it's an abusive relationship, um, and you've got to figure out what's the best way of me being a friend to handle this situation, adding up numbers or trying to look at rules on a list isn't going to tell you what you have to do. You have to cultivate wisdom and situational awareness. Right. And that's what's so beautiful about it, I think, because when it comes to commandments or guidelines, and I mean, this isn't what I'm going to say, it's not meant to obviously offend or be disrespectful to any sort of religions. I mean, they definitely obviously have their place. But it's, I mean, in some sense, it's infantilizing. I mean, it's to say, like, you don't really, you can't, you don't have the brain power to figure out what's right. So here, I'm giving you these guidelines and just stick to them, right? That's it. That's all you have to really do. Don't think about it. Just do these things or don't do these things that I'm telling you not to do. Whereas with Confucius, he's pretty much telling or told us that you are ethically responsible for your life right and I'm gonna sort of give you a type of blueprint of sort of vague blueprint of how to make these decisions but at the end of the day you're the one who's gonna to have to cultivate the wisdom I cannot do that for you yeah, and a later Confucian uh, who lived in the what was it the, I think the 18th century uh, Zhang Xuecheng uh, he had a great observation about this he said in his era he said too many people in my era are trying to do what Confucius did but if you really want to follow Confucius, you shouldn't do what Confucius did. You should do what Confucius would do if he were in your situation. And that might be very different from what Confucius did. For example, Confucius was a scholar, and there's nothing wrong with being a scholar, but he was a scholar because he couldn't find a position in government where he could bring about effective positive change. And so if there are people who say, oh, well, I'm going to become a scholar like Confucius did. Well, maybe that's the right choice for you, but don't do it just because that's what Confucius did 2,500 years ago. Ask what Confucius would do if he were in your society right now in your situation. Huh. And does that relate to, um, I think that quote that you had in your book was, um, if you see the Buddha, kill him? Yeah, okay. exactly. So it's a famous uh, Buddhist uh, Zen koan. Mm -hmm. uh, if you meet the Buddha, kill him. And what does it mean? It's a metaphor for the way in which we have to destroy every fixed idea we have of right and wrong, because even the best image of the, in the world, including the image of Confucius, can be appropriated as an excuse for doing what is wrong. Um, and so you have to overcome your, our natural human tendency to make idols in the technical sense out of human beings or uh, even out of texts. We have to use these things to inspire our own thinking. Wang Yangming is another great later Confucian philosopher, and uh, he once said, uh, the passing sages are nothing but uh, shadows to me. It is my pure knowing that is my guide. Mm -hmm. And he said, "If I, I would say Confucius was wrong if I thought he was wrong. And then he adds, I never do. Mm -hmm. but, but if he were, I would say so because I would trust my own innate understanding even more than Confucius himself. Huh. And what's so cool is that pretty much like um, the idea is that but I think a lot of times, and this is not always the case obviously, but a lot of times when we do idealize, um, let's say obviously regular people, so we kind of say that, oh well these people are up here and we're sort of beneath them. So um, and I actually want to in that sort of respect read a passage from your book which I think is really great and really relevant. Uh, hold on, let me just get it. Okay, so this was, I thought, really wonderful and really sort of pertinent to this discussion where he said, well, in, Brian wrote in the book, he wrote, one of Confucius's disciples tried to rationalize his failures by saying, it's not that I do not delight in your way, master. It is that I don't, my strength is insufficient. But Confucius would have none of it. Those whose strength is insufficient, those whose strength is insufficient collapse in the middle of the way. In this case, you draw a line. So in other words, the disciples belief that he could not aspire to become a sage is merely a rationalization that he talks himself into in order to just his own inaction. It is a mistake. It is a mistaken belief that becomes self-fulfilling. So pretty much the idea that I took away from it was that be careful of idealizing people because when you do, what you do is you're essentially saying, "Oh, I can never be like them," and I, it's sort of easier for me to worship this person rather than to actually try to aspire or to try to become or try to attain the sort of um, his way or his way of being. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I help. I think it helps to combat the this image of Confucian sages as people who sit cross-legged on mountaintops dispensing, you know, cryptic, uh, you know, uh, aphorisms. In reality, uh, Confucians have always been people who've been involved in everyday life. I mean, they're active members of their family. They're active members of their community. Uh, in all they, they do, they're trying to be the best people they can be. 
And those people are members of society first and foremost. And so if you, if you think like, oh, I could never be a sage because I could never transcend uh, my ordinary life, Confucius would say, who's telling you to transcend your ordinary life? I'm just trying, telling you to live it the best you can be. If you want to be a, uh, a waiter or a waitress, fine. Be the best waiter or waitress you can be. If you're going to be a congressperson, great. Be the best congressperson you should be. Uh, show integrity in these roles. Show compassion in these roles. Show wisdom in these roles. And that is being a good Confucian, not transcending the world. Love. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that so much. And I would say, like with Confucius, the idea, from my kind of understanding, was that it's okay to emulate the good parts of him, obviously, as it is with any sort of role model. But to also understand that if you fall into the trap of kind of worshiping as though he were a guru, then what obviously happens is you think of him again as sort of he's sort of up here and he's sort of this divine in some sense being, and here I am down here who can never really become that. So maybe it's better to kind of shift my focus from self or kind of ethical cultivation to pretty much just sort of worshiping and idealizing him. Which is yeah. very dangerous, yeah. And and as I point out in in my article, the one of the the surest signs to know that you're not a sage is that you think you're a sage. Right. So it's absolutely impossible to believe you're a sage and be a sage. That's disqualifying. And this is something that Confucians have said. They said even you know Confucius says of himself. He says he's not a sage. Um, and you know later, uh, people who are considered sages like Mengzi and Wang Yangming, they say, "I'm not a sage. I failed so much." Um, but that humility is precisely one of the things that allows them to be as good people as they were able to be, and allows them to to model ourselves on their good traits, including their humility. Yeah. And it's like, oh, uh, I just like the nuance here because what's interesting is. Uh, going back to Buddhism, uh, if right, if you uh, the same thing actually, if you thought you were a sage or that you are enlightened, most definitely you are not because you're identifying with some kind of uh, role or some level of status, level of status right. or some kind of achievement, mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating because it, it it seems very similar um, in Confucian philosophy, uh, except. There's that nuance where they still respect your role and your identity, but when it comes to your status, at least in terms of being a, a sage, they won't identify with that particular level of status, right. which is fascinating. I, that, that's one thing I appreciate about uh, Confucianism is, is how much nuance they allow for. Um, they're like, well... We're not. It's not black and white. It's, it's not always you have to do this way or that way. You have to have a discernment or uh, be able to make the distinction how to act in each situation right. and how to think. I know, but I think so. Brian, is it that? Because um, in my understanding of it, the idea is that the sage is pretty much the ideal, right? As um, I guess the person who would reach enlightenment in Buddhism. So is it that when, uh, let's say, the Confucian compares himself or herself, obviously, to um, let's say to sagehood or whatever that is, that they, the humility is pretty much the understanding that no, no, I can't be a sage because I'm not perfect and I make mistakes. So even though you may see me as that, I know from my own sort of um, self-assessment that it's not possible for me to be. A sage. So is that kind of what that is? Exactly. So it, there's always an ongoing process where you're always trying to be better and you're always being aware of your own limitations. And Confucius says this of himself. He says that I'm traveling with two people. I try to emulate what's good in them. And if there's something in them that I think is not good, I try to look for that in myself and work, work on that issue myself. Uh, and it's an interesting contrast, for example, with Aristotle, who describes the person who has a megalotsukia is great souled. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle says that the great souled person is virtuous and they know they're virtuous and they know that they should be treated with respect and so they demand to be treated with respect. And so Aristotle thinks that uh, if you're actually a virtuous person, you should know that and you should demand to be treated with corresponding respect. Whereas the Confucian ideal emphasizes humility and human imperfection. And so it says that although the possibility of, a sa of sagehood is real for humans, uh, it's not something that you could be internally aware of because that would require a level of satisfaction and conceit that would be undermining of, of the humility you need to be a true sage, ironically. I love that. So I mean, the idea is pretty much that you can't develop if you're convinced that you're already perfect. Exactly. Right. Exactly.
And and so I remember um, there was this book that I read. Uh, I, I, I think his name was Armin Nicoli, if I'm not mistaken. So he wrote this book called The Question of God. Um, so he was a religious kind of Christian scholar, but he wrote the book was kind of like um, this fictional argument between uh, Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. And so it, what was interesting about that was that like, so Freud was pretty much notoriously narcissistic. And um, so C.S. Lewis actually was sort of the antithesis, the antithesis of that. And so the way he kind of phrased it was that like with C.S. Lewis, the even though C.S. Lewis was objectively a much better human being than Sigmund Freud, right? The idea was in their kind of minds, it was sort of shifted or it was converse. Where if you were to ask, let's say, C.S. Lewis, um, like, let's say, what kind of person do you think you are? He would say, well, if there was sort of a table full of people and we kind of sort of lined it up in such a way where, like, let's say the worst of them would sit, at, kind of ethically speaking, would sit at the end of the table, I would sit at the end of the table. Whereas Sigmund Freud's whole conception was, oh, I'm actually way more ethical than most other people. He's like, maybe there are some people out there who are better than I am but for the most part it's really me he's like I, I mean it's really disgusting how bad people are but me on the other <laughs> hand I know way better than they do because I'm sort of more in control of my impulses or unconscious impulses so but it's so interesting how that shift goes whereas for C.S. Lewis obviously he kind of undervalued how ethical he was Sigmund Freud on the other hand completely overvalued it yeah well I, I remember C.S. Lewis at one point says uh, that he says I, I talk about almost all the vices there are um, and that's because I have all of them. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, there's only a couple of vices I don't talk about, like, uh, and he, he mentions gambling. He says, I've just never been tempted, so I don't know what to say about that. Mm -hmm. You know, but to the other ones, I'm only able to talk about them because I've experienced those vices. Right. And I think, right. that, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a good thing to be aware. This is the trick, I think, of ethical cultivation is we want to set a high ideal for ourselves and we, we want to try to make progress toward it but it's so dangerous to become self-righteous and that that really gets in the way of that and confucians are aware of that and confucius will warn his disciples against that and say look you're becoming too judgmental of others you're focusing too much on what others are doing and one of my my favorite confucian sayings is that the the virtuous person is demanding of themselves but generous towards others because you want to be a better person, focus on you being a better person and focus less on being judgmental towards others. Right, I love that. Right, I love that. Mm -hmm. Confusion. It's like it's it, to me, and you know what's so interesting. Also, the other thought that kind of popped in my mind was that in terms of like studies, when they um, the studies that they do like on psychotherapy and when like where I guess when it is effective and when it isn't is that sort of it's interesting because uh, objectively, not objectively, um, the way we kind of I guess most of the time think of it is that sort of the more confident the therapist is the better the results mm -hmm. and it's actually what a lot of studies show is it's actually the opposite that the better a therapist thinks the worse the results are so there's actually an inverse right so there's um what is it called uh i forgot wow i can't believe i forgot the technical name for this but there's pretty much an inverse correlation so it's like the more the better you think you are as a clinician the worse actually your results are and so interestingly enough and i mean there's obviously a cutoff point to this Kruger effect Yes, 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 yes. So, it, and it's that pretty much in the context of therapy. Yeah, absolutely. So, and the idea is pretty much, and of course, you can f be so full of self doubt and insecurities that you, it's pretty much ineffective. So, there's a cutoff point. But the point is that actually, the more sort of uh, humble you are and the more self doubt you have, what happens is that if, like, you were to ask from the different perspectives, you would ask the therapist, like, how well do you think the client is doing? And how well do you think that you're actually, or uh, you would, then you would ask the client, how well do you think the therapy is going? Well, what would happen is there would actually be this discrepancy. So, so for the most part, and this is of course before that cutoff point, that if a therapist thinks that the therapy isn't really going anywhere, they're not sure of where they're, what they're, if they're helping the client, they're not sure of what they're supposed to be doing, what happens is a lot of times that the therapy is actually going much better than they think. Whereas it's actually conversely the opposite when the therapist actually thinks, oh, I'm definitely helping this person. There's no way that she or she isn't doing well. So it's so interesting how that works. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I saw a study recently where they discovered that if you're playing a, a video game online with other people, uh, the people who play the, the men who play the game less well are more likely to make derogatory comments towards other players, particularly women, whereas the people who play the game really well, or the women who play the game really well, don't tend to make derogatory comments towards others. So literally, the people who are inclined to make derogatory comments to others are losers. <laughs> terms of the game, right. you know, where, where successful don't feel the need to do that. They can acknowledge when other people are doing well. They're not afraid to admit when they've made mistakes, and they don't feel the need to blame other people when something goes wrong. Wow. 
That's so... Yeah, plus all your resources go towards the actual gameplay as opposed to, oh, I didn't do so well, I'm going to react, concentrate on putting someone else down, then go back to playing. It's just too many variables, unnecessary right. variables. Right. Yeah. Right. You're thinking about how do you look to other people as opposed to what you're actually like, and that's one of the reasons Confucians really stress it's not as important what just a random person thinks about you or whether a random person is praising you is somebody who's knowledgeable praising you and are they praising you for characteristics you really have or just for an appearance that's so interesting that's so wow okay i mean i guess to wrap things up alan do you have any final questions for brian before we go oh uh yeah brian actually if we wanted to follow you your work or follow you online uh, where can we find you um, I've got a website, uh, BrianVanNorden.com. I'm one of those people who spells Brian with a Y. Mm -hmm. So B-R-I-A-N-V-A-N. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Brian Adams. Like, yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, not like that, I hope. <laughs> but felt like that anyway. Uh, I'm also on uh, uh, Facebook as uh, Brian Van Norden um, and on Twitter as Brian Van Norden. You know, so any of those places, you can start to follow me online. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. I accidentally cut you off. Can you give us the website again? Sure. Uh, so B-R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-N-O-R-D-E-N.com. BrianVanNorden.com. Okay, excellent. Uh, you can find everything from there. And I also have a bibliography on there of readings on Chinese, African, uh, East Indian, and indigenous American philosophy, if you'd like to learn more about those things. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. This was such an insightful Thank conversation. You, Guys, that's great questions. Terrific talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm going to listen to this episode probably within the next day because there's <laughs> so much there. So rich. All right. Thank you so I, much, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. All right. That was awesome. That was a really good episode. Yeah. yeah. So, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like and subscribe. <laughs> Hit, the, Hit bell. the bell. Hit the bell. And also find us at the O4L Online Network under the show section that we are under Seize the Moment Podcast. See you guys next week for episode 43.